0: After spending a dozen chapters judging the nations of the day, Isaiah sees into the distant future, and he beholds God's judgment in the world's final days. These four chapters in Isaiah eerily parallel the earth-rocking events that we find in Revelation chapters 6 through 19. You see, Isaiah 24 through 27 foresees the time that the Bible refers to as the day of the Lord. Today is the day of man. Man is having his way, getting his say. But there is a day coming for this earth when the Lord will have his say, when the Lord will get his way. The Lord will have the final say in human affairs. This day of the Lord begins with the rapture of the church. It includes a rampage of plagues and judgments upon the wicked world, It also includes the return of Jesus to rescue the Jews. It culminates with the restoration of God's kingdom and then ultimately the reign of Jesus in glory. Isaiah chapter 24 through 27 are breathtaking chapters. Recall the ominous introduction to Isaiah 24. The Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste, distorts its surface, and scatters abroad its inhabitants. Think of that for a moment. In verse 2, Isaiah says God's judgment doesn't discriminate. At the end of chapter 24, Isaiah compares the planet to a drunken man, or a hammock reeling back and forth. Literally, the earth will be knocked off its hinges. And now in chapter 25, Isaiah's emphasis is on how God will protect His people, the Jews, throughout this wicked earth's painful ordeal. These final judgments God will vent upon planet earth are intended to punish the wicked, but also to purify the Jews. Well, chapter 25 of Isaiah begins, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. While on his righteous rampage, it's interesting that the praise of God rises up from God's people. It's interesting, as God judges the earth, no one will question God's fairness or criticize God's harshness. Chapter 24 has made clear the reasons for God's judgment. Verses 4 and 5 told us that the people will become prideful. They'll defy God's boundaries. They'll doctor up God's laws. If God doesn't judge their rebellion, that would be reason to question His righteousness. For millenniums now, the earth below and the heart of God above have been tortured by the recklessness and the wickedness of fallen human beings. God's punishment of sin will become a welcome relief. It will be a reason to praise God in the final days. This is why Isaiah refers to God's judgments as wonderful things. And then he adds, Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. God's laws, though ancient, though old, are always as relevant as the morning news. Ignore God's word or twist it. You do so at your own peril. It's interesting, in Psalm 116, verse 11, there David cried out, cried out this prayer. He said, I said in my haste, all men are liars. One man remarked, I now have had a lot of time to think it over, and I still agree with David. <laughs> Humans do lie. They do deceive. God is the faithful and true one. Verse 2 tells us, For you have made a city a ruin, a fortified city a ruin, a palace of foreigners to be a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore the strong people will glorify you. The city of the terrible nations will fear you. God will go toe-to-toe with the mightiest of earth's inhabitants. He'll prove Himself stronger than them all. For you have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. You will reduce the noise of aliens as heat in a dry place, as heat in the shadow of a cloud. The song of the terrible ones will be diminished. God will defend the poor and the needy in that day. And in this mountain the Lord of hosts will make all make for all people a feast of choice pieces a feast of wines on the lees of fat things full of marrow of well-refined wines on the lees as God's judgment rains down on earth God will serve up a feast for his people in the mountain of the Lord And notice his people will eat the choice pieces no ground chuck for us Only prime cuts. Top sirloin for God's people. You know, Revelation describes two very different scenes in the last days. On earth, terrible plagues will wreak havoc upon mankind, upon the wickedness of mankind. Whereas in heaven, God will be throwing a party. Revelation 19 calls it the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus will greet the church that's been raptured or snatched up and he'll throw a party to welcome his bride. He'll serve us the choice cuts. I like that. Notice what else is on God's party menu. Fat things full of marrow. I read recently where bone marrow, you know that spongy tissue in the center of a bone, is a great source of protein. It's high on monosaturated fat, which helps reduce the risk of heart disease. And for us who know God, it's no surprise that when his kingdom comes, he'll feed his people not only what tastes good, but what's healthy for us. That's just like God. All that he does, all that he commands is good for his people. And then verse 7 tells us, and he will destroy all his all and he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people, and the veil that is spread over over all nations. You know what the problem in the world today actually is. There is a veil. There there is a spiritual covering that Satan has cast. There's a blindness that Satan has cast over the eyes of men and nations. And it's only when Jesus returns will this satanic covering, this veil, be removed and folks will be able to see unhindered. Here again Isaiah speaks of how God will treat His people in the kingdom age, He says, he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Now, if you've read the New Testament, these verses are familiar to you, aren't they? In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54, Paul quotes the first half of this verse, whereas in Revelation 21, verse 4, John quotes the latter half of the same verse. Both New Testament passages speak of Messiah's ultimate triumph over sin and its consequences. And here's what's so amazing. Both Paul and John were looking into the future through the eyes of a prophet who lived 700 years prior to them. In other words, they were looking back in order to see forward. And herein is the big lesson. The key to understanding the future is often tucked away in the history of the past. This is why the Old Testament Hebrew history is so vital for us today. Isaiah also says of Jesus, the rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And of course, on the cross, Jesus did take away our rebuke. Our punishment ended, judgment was satisfied. And then, verse 9, and it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. We will be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Hey, death has been swallowed up in victory. All tears will be wiped from our eyes. These are God's promises to you and to me. But inheriting those promises requires patience. We need to wait for Him. You see, we live in the meantime, in the in-between time between the giving of these promises and the receiving of these promises. That's why every Christian needs patience. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 encourages to wait on God. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And He has. Here's a good definition. Patience is letting your motor idle when you feel like stripping the gears. It's tough to be patient, isn't it? Faith, though, requires patience. Faith and patience, Paul said, inherits the promises. Famous missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, noted three requirements for a successful missionary enterprise. He taught his young protégés, there's three things you need to be a good missionary. Patience, patience, and patience. You remember when, Jesus tempted, or when Satan tempted Jesus, He took Jesus to a high mountain, and he offered him the kingdoms of this world. If Jesus would just bow down to Satan. Ironically, Jesus already owned all of those kingdoms, did he not? The temptation was to get them now, to forego the agony of the cross. Hey, Jesus, you can have these kingdoms. You don't even have to be patient. You can have them now christian life is like a giant waiting room we're praying we're hoping we're living in the meantime we know that ultimately healing will come but there's a wait i like what henrietta mears said the purposes of god may sometimes seem delayed but they are never abandoned isaiah 25 closes with a judgment against moab for on this mountain the hand of the lord will rest And Moab will be trampled down under him as straw is trampled down for the refuse heap. And he will spread out his hands in their midst as a swimmer reaches out to swim. And he will bring down their pride together with the trickery of their hands. The fortress of the high fort of your walls he will bring down, let low and bring to the ground, down to the dust. God's hand on the one hand is protecting Zion while Moab will be trampled under God's foot. And here's our cho- choice, really. I mean, which would you prefer? In his hands or under his foot? In a sense, these prophecies are really for us. And then chapter 26 tells us, In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God will appoint salvation for walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous righteous nation which keeps the truth may enter in. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And to me, here is one of the most beautiful verses in all of the Scripture. God promises perfect peace to the mind that is stayed or fixed on him. This phrase translated perfect peace is literally a double shalom. Shalom, shalom is the literal translation. Peace in Hebrew is shalom. This is a double peace. Or you could put it, this is peace to the nth degree. Author F.B. Meyer comments, It is your privilege to live inside the double doors of God's loving care. He says to you, peace peace if one assurance isn't enough he will follow it with a second and a third and how does one experience this peace peace and not just for a moment but how do we live in the midst of this peace notice Isaiah says it's a matter of the mind not our emotions not our heart not our willpower But we stay our minds. We lean our thoughts in toward Jesus. We refuse to indulge in those what ifs we talked about last week. We muffle our doubts. We stop entertaining vain speculations. Hey, have you parked your mind in God's lot? We need to stay our minds. Remember, peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is the poise and the confidence even in the midst of a conflict. There's a seascape that's quite famous. It's entitled Peace. Waves are crashing. Storm is raging. Circumstances are anything but peaceful. Yet in the very center of the painting tucked away under a rock is a tiny bird totally at rest. God gives us peace in the midst of the storm. Not from the storm but in the midst of the storm. Hey, you can be mindful of the storm, but peace is unattainable when our mind is stayed on the storm. We need to anchor our minds to God and to His Word. And then verse 4 tells us, Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah, the Lord, is everlasting strength. Pay attention to this phrase, everlasting strength. In the Hebrew, it's literally rock of ages and here is the inspiration for the hymn that goes by that name Yahweh Lord of all the earth he never weathers he never wears out he is a shelter he is a rock he is a hiding place for his people for he brings down those who dwell on high the lofty city he lays it low he lays it low to the ground he brings it down to the dust the foot shall tread it down the feet of the poor, and the steps of the needy. Recall the third beatitude in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Who is it that inherits the earth? It's the meek, not the high and haughty. The mighty occupy for a time, but Jesus exalts the humble to rise up and rule on the earth. Verse 7, the way of the just is uprightness, O most upright, you weigh the path of the just. Yes, in the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you. The desire of our soul is for your name and for the remembrance of you. With my soul, I have desired you in the night. Yes, by my spirit within me, I will seek you early. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Let grace be shown to the wicked. Yet he will not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he will deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. God's grace gives second chances. The problem, though, is that the unrepentant person refuses to take advantage of God's grace. Men won't always gravitate toward grace. It can be resisted. Pride can harden a heart to God's grace. Verse 11 tells us, Lord, when your hand is lifted up, they will not see, but they will see and be ashamed for their envy of people. Yes, the fire of your enemies shall devour them. Lord, you will establish peace for us, for you have also done all our works in us. I like that. The accomplishments of God's people are always the result of God's work in us and then through us. What we do on our own is minimal. It's God who does the work through us. And then he says, O Lord our God, masters besides You have had dominion over us, but by You only we make mention of Your name. They are dead. They will not live. They are deceased. They will not rise. Therefore, You have punished and destroyed them and made all their memory to perish. Israel of old was ruled by many foreign powers. But God ultimately defeated His enemies. And then verse 15. You have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have expanded all the borders of the land. And here Isaiah is speaking of God's blessings to the nation Israel. You know, when God called Abraham, He promised him the land from the Euphrates River all the way to the Nile. Israel has never ruled over all her territory, but one day she will. In fact, the Arabs are in for a big shock. Rather than drive Israel into the sea, one day Israel will rule over their lands. The whole Middle East will be the land of Israel. A tour to Israel will take a lot more than 10 days. We'll have to go over for two or three months. You see, God has not replaced Israel with the church. All God's promises to Israel will one day be literally fulfilled. You have expanded all the borders of the land. But a purging also awaits God's people. Notice verse 16. Lord, in trouble they have visited you. They poured out a prayer when your chastening was upon them. As a woman with child is in pain and cries out in her pangs, when she draws near the time of her delivery, So have we been in your sight, O Lord. We have been with child. We have been in pain. We have, as it were, brought forth wind. We have not accomplished any deliverance in the earth, nor have the inhabitants of the world fallen. Before God's kingdom comes, a time of trouble is ahead for Israel. God will chasten or correct Israel. You see, the great tribulation has two purposes. It will punish the wicked but it will also purify the Jews. And verse 19 is a mind-blowing verse. For tucked away right here in the heart of the Old Testament is an amazing New Testament truth. Check this out. Isaiah says, For your dead shall live, together with my dead body they shall arise. It's often said the New Testament is in the Old Concealed In the Old Testament is in the New revealed. Eyes on the future are often found in the wisdom of the past. And here's a great example. A statement of our identification with Christ. Spiritually, believers have died with Jesus. We are crucified with Him. We've put our faith in the cross so that one day we'll live with Him. Romans 6 verse 5 states the same truth. If we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Here Isaiah predicted your dead shall live together with my dead body. They shall arise. Because Jesus died and because we've associated with his death, we've died with him. One day we'll live with him again. And then Isaiah celebrates awake and seeing you who dwell in dust. For your your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. The New Testament calls the risen Lord Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection. Christians are the remainder of the harvest. Jesus paved the way for His followers to also be resurrected. Notice the progression now in this chapter. Grace is shown... God works in His people, in and through us. He chastens us when necessary. We die and rise with Him. I mean, what would you think comes next? In the New Testament, what would be our added hope? Well, how about the rapture of the church? For we've been promised an escape from the tribulation that God will send on an evil world. And from Isaiah's ancient perch we see clearly this very event. It's mind-boggling, really. Isaiah living 700 years before Christ, not to mention his church. But Isaiah sees an event in the end times when Jesus will come and take his people home. Notice verse 20. Notice the invitation. Come, my people. Enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation, until the judgment, the fierce judgment is passed. Notice this verse. Have you ever seen it before? It speaks of the rapture right here in the Old Testament in Isaiah. Isaiah invites God's people at the time of these end-time judgments to escape, to come into your chambers. God desires to punish the evildoers, but he doesn't desire to punish his own people. So rather than subject us to friendly fire, he takes the church out of harm's way. He airlifts us. He invites us to come into his chambers and to shut the door behind us and to hide ourselves if but for a little time until the judgment is passed. What a beautiful verse. It speaks of the rapture. In verse 20, God has prepared his people a safe chamber. You remember what Jesus says to his disciples on the night before he was crucified? He said, in my father's house, there are many mansions, and I go to prepare a place for you. And then he says, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And here Jesus invites his people to come and to enter their chambers. Shut the door behind them and escape the indignation. Read Revelation chapter 6 through 19. The cataclysms that God hurls at earth in the great tribulation are so devastating. There is no hiding place on earth. There'll be no corner of the planet that'll be safe. The only refuge in that day will be heaven itself. And thus, before God's judgment comes down, the church goes up. Our sin has already been judged on the cross Jesus paid our debt in full. Those Christian believers aren't looking for judgment. We're looking for Jesus. But as the bride of Christ spends these last seven years behind closed doors, in her chambers, with her groom, an avalanche of horror will fall on planet Earth. Verse 21 tells us, For behold, the Lord comes out of His place. Remember, it's the day of the Lord. He's going to have His way now. He's going to have His say now to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. Chapter 27, In that day, the Lord with His severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, that twisted serpent, and He will slay the reptile that is in the sea. There was once a little old lady who had a reputation for never saying a bad word about anyone. One day she was challenged. Well, what do you think about the devil? Surely she wouldn't have a nice word to say about the old serpent Lucifer. The lady, though, she thought for a few minutes and she said, Well, I guess we have to admire his persistence. Well, it is true the devil has been quite persistent. From the opening act of creation until the final curtain closes, Satan remains the chief nemesis of God's plans. Here he's called Leviathan, that twisted serpent. You remember, this was how Satan appeared to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Revelation 12, verse 9, calls him the great dragon. By the way, you know what a dragon is it's a serpent with legs. You remember the serpent in the Garden of Eden was cursed? How he was cursed? He was made to crawl on his belly. Apparently beforehand he had legs. He was a dragon. Satan is called in Revelation 12 verse 9, that great dragon, that serpent of old. In Revelation 13, the Antichrist, Satan's agent in the last days, is seen as a beast rising from the sea. Here Isaiah 27 calls him a reptile in the sea. You know, in the Bible, the sea is associated with evil. You can't drink seawater. The sea is unpredictable. Sudden storms pop up on the sea. You remember when Jesus confronted a rowdy sea. You remember what he did to the sea? He rebuked it as if it were inspired by a demon. In the new heaven and new earth, there will be no sea. Satan slithers among the vast sea of sinful humanity. And the whole Bible is really the story of a battle between God and this twisted serpent or Leviathan. Job 26, read it later. Psalm 74, Psalm 89, Daniel 7, Revelation 13 all record skirmishes between God and this twisted serpent, Leviathan. The climax of the battle occurs in Revelation 12 when the twisted serpent becomes the fleeing serpent when satan is booted out of heaven and he is ultimately defeated in the end genesis 3 verse 15 will finally be fulfilled on the cross the serpent inflicted on jesus a heel bruise a slight bruise but when jesus returns he'll crush the serpent's head genesis 3 verse 15 will ultimately be fulfilled And so verse 2 tells us, In that day, sing to her a vineyard of red wine. I, the Lord, keep it. I water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I keep it night and day. Israel was God's vineyard. Isaiah uses this imagery back in chapter 5. God continues, Fury is not in me. Who would set briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them. I would burn them together. When God judges, his emotions are not what ours would be. I'd be thinking, I'll show them. I'll rub their nose in it. That's what I'll do. But God isn't so insecure. He doesn't have to show anyone anything. And he never stops loving people, even the people that he judges. He cares about justice and what's right and truth and humility. Sadly, those who refuse to humble themselves and accept his truth he has to humble himself. And then verse 5 tells us, Or let him take hold of my strength, that he may make peace with me, and he shall make peace with me. Rather than God take hold of you in his anger, it's better that you take hold of God by faith and make peace. And now is the time to make that peace. For those who come, he shall cause to take root in Jacob. Israel shall blossom and bud, And fill the face of the world with fruit. And here God reveals His intentions for His people Israel. He will prosper this nation. You know, this prophecy is already being fulfilled. Today, Eretz Israel, or the land of Israel. Though it is the size of New Jersey, just a small little country, one-seventh the size of the state of Georgia, yet it is the Middle East's largest agricultural producer. It's one of Europe's leading citrus growers. As Isaiah foretold, Israel will fill the face of the world with fruit. And literally, this is happening today. And then verse 7. Has he struck Israel as he struck those who struck him? Or has he been slain according to the slaughter of those who were slain by him? In measure, by sending it away, you contended with it, he removes it by his rough wind in the day of the east wind. God will judge Israel, but not to the same extent He brings judgment on Israel's enemies, on other nations. Verse 9, Therefore by this the iniquity of Jacob will be covered, and this is all the fruit of taking away his sin, when he makes all the stones of the altar like chalk stones that are beaten to dust, wooden images and incense altars shall not stand. Again, the great tribulation will be a time of purification for Israel. God will purge His people of any trace of idolatry. He'll grind the idols to dust. Yet the fortified city will be desolate, the habitation forsaken and left like a wilderness. There the calf will feed, and there it will lie down and consume its branches. When its bows are withered, they will be broken off. The women come and set them on fire. For it is a people of no understanding. Therefore, he who made them will have mercy on them, and he who formed them will show them no favor. Before Jesus returns, Israel will be the scourge of the earth. Their enemies will show them no pity. It's God's judgment upon them. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will thrash from the channel of the river to the brook of Egypt. In other words, from the Euphrates to the Nile. And you will be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel. So it shall be in that day the great trumpet will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, and they who are outcasts in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. When Israel reaches the brink of annihilation, when she's been scattered across the globe, God will come on her behalf and defeat her enemies and call His people home. You know, Isaiah foresees a final exodus. Today, six million Jews live in Israel. But that's out of a worldwide population of between 13 and 14 million Jews. Did you know that more Jews live in America than in Israel? Only 40% of Jews actually live in Israel. The Jewish return predicted by the prophets is far from complete. It's still future, and it'll be fulfilled at the end of the age. Well, chapter 28 begins a new section of Isaiah. Six woes or warnings are announced to the southern kingdom of Judah. And again, it's a blend of both local and then future judgments. Think of it this way. All God's judgments are really warm-ups for the final judgment. Anytime God judges locally, it's a shot across the bow. It's a wake-up call to someone. God hopes that man repents so that he can spare them of the end-time judgment. Verse 1. Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the Verdant Valleys to those who are overcome with wine. Ephraim, or the hills of Samaria, are known for their plush, fertile verdant valleys. Today, this is the West Bank. This is Palestinian-held territory. One year, on our tour to Israel, we visited Shiloh, which is in this area, which is on the West Bank. And it was a beautiful place, fertile, lush land. And it's where God's people of old grew their grapes and made their wine, which became their nemesis. For here Isaiah says that Israel ended up overcome with wine. Let me say up front that except for pastors and for elders, the Bible never calls for an absolute abstinence from alcohol. You remember, on earth, Jesus turned water into fermented wine. Jesus drank wine. Paul told Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach's sake. There's nothing wrong with a glass of wine with your meal if you aren't overcome. The Bible allows for alcohol in moderation. But what the Bible does prohibit is drunkenness. Not everyone can drink in moderation. It's estimated that today, one out of every six people will have an alcohol problem at some point in their life. You see, if you can't stop with one glass or with one beer, then you shouldn't drink at all. If you're overcome when you drink, then it's a sin. And overcome doesn't just mean fall down sloppy drunk. It means if your judgment is impaired, if you're a little fuzzy if you come under the alcohol's control you see god wants you and i dominated by the holy spirit not distilled spirits paul said in ephesians be not drunk with wine but be filled with the holy spirit paul says in 1 corinthians chapter 6 verse 12 all things are lawful for me but i will not be brought under the power of any if your life is under the power of alcohol If you think about it often, in other words, or if you plot your next opportunity to get a drink, if you cover up its influence after you've drunk, then you're overcome. You know, I know my personality. I am a compulsive person, no doubt about it. This is one of the reasons I've chosen not to drink at all. I don't want to take even the slightest chance of becoming addicted, or as Isaiah says, overcome with wine. Notice here, God judged Ephraim because they were overcome with wine. Verse 2 tells us, Behold, the Lord, has a mighty, the Lord has a mighty and strong one, like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing, who will bring them down to the earth with His hand. The crown of pride. The drunkards of Ephraim will be trampled underfoot, and the glorious beauty is a fading flower which is at the head of the Verdant Valley, like the first fruit before the summer which an observer sees. He eats it up while it is still in his hand. Twice now, the drunkards of Ephraim are accused of pride. Isn't it interesting that alcohol and pride go hand in hand? Wine, it lessens your inhibitions. Get a few beers under your belt and you get a little cocky, don't you? You want to fight the biggest guy in the bar. You feel invincible. And yet, oh, the beauty fades. The alcoholic gets toppled. I'll never forget my hospital visit to a man who was dying of cirrhosis of the liver. He literally drank himself to death. He was jaundiced. Looked yellow. His skin was ashen and shriveled. His eyes had already sunk back in his head. The glorious thing is that he prayed with me to receive Christ. It's never too late. It was a true deathbed conversion. And you could see the joy of the Lord in his heart the moment he prayed. He and I rejoiced together. But I'll never forget his funeral, which was a few weeks later. Only three people showed up at his funeral. Only three people. It was such a desperate situation. They asked James to do the music. I mean, mean, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. The Only three people who showed up other than Pastor James who did the music was the man's mom, his sister, and her daughter, who I'm sure came reluctantly. I thought to myself, how do you live for 35 years and in the end, nobody on the planet cares that you even lived or died? I tell you, it was alcohol that wasted this guy's life. You laugh at me if you want to for not wanting to drink. I've just seen too many effects. I've seen too many people who've been overcome by alcohol, it wastes lives. It wastes opportunities. It wastes time. It alienates people. A life overcome with alcohol, Isaiah says, is like a fading flower trampled underfoot. He says, In that day the Lord of hosts will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of His people, for a spirit of justice to Him who sits in judgment and for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. But they also have erred through wine, and through intoxicating drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. The Lord wanted to bring glory to Israel, but instead Israel erred through intoxicating drink. It was Shakespeare who said, O thou invisible spirit of wine, if thou hast no name to be known by, let us call thee devil. Alcohol is a depressant. It depresses our decision-making ability, our inhibitions, our emotions, our balance, our clarity. You're less of a person when you're under the influence of alcohol. You're less of what God wants. You can't be what God wants you to be under the influence of alcohol. In contrast, the Holy Spirit sharpens our capacities. He enhances our abilities. And notice who erred through intoxicating drink. It was the priest and the prophet. It were men who were supposed to be listening to God. Instead, they ended up out of the way because of intoxicating drink. Notice their problems. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. Well, because they're under the influence of another force. Because of alcohol. Their love for God, their commitment to God was eroded by alcohol. As Isaiah puts it, Swallowed up by wine. This is why I don't drink and that I don't believe that a pastor should. And if one does, he's being foolish. Alcohol takes its toll not only on individuals, but on society at large. Recently, a researcher at Columbia University wrote, contrary to conventional wisdom and popular myth, alcohol is more tightly linked with violent crimes than crack, cocaine, heroin, or any other illegal drug. Understand, 16,000 people die every year on America's roads due to alcohol-related accidents. 16,000 people every year. The FBI says that over half of all rapes involve alcohol. And yet why is it our culture glorifies the use of intoxicating drink? By the time a child turns 18 years old, they've watched over 100,000 beer commercials. Here's what people don't see, verse 8. For all tables are full of vomit and filth. No place is clean. Oh, the Hollywood drunk, he's the life of the party. You don't see him with his head in the toilet, throwing his guts out afterwards. Isaiah says that drunkenness was rampant in Judah. Even the priests and the prophets erred by intoxicating drink. It distorts your judgment. The priest, the prophet, needs to be able to give sound counsel whenever asked for. That's why he shouldn't indulge in these things. In air, according to intoxicating drink. And then Isaiah, he's so concerned about this, verse 9. He says, whom will teach knowledge? And whom will he make to understand the message? I mean, if the priests are drunk, who's going to hear from God? Those just weaned from milk? Those just drawn from the breasts? I mean, are we going to turn to the kids to teach us because all the adults are drunk? People at the time, they were into booze, not the Bible. Alcohol had killed all their spiritual passion for God. It had caused a spiritual numbness among the people. Verse 10 tells us, For precept must be upon precept. Precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. You see, alcohol will numb our hunger for God's Word. But if we don't have a hunger for God's Word, we won't grow spiritually. You see, you engage your mind with all of its faculties when you study the Scripture. You can't be clouded. You should study the Bible line by line, verse by verse, thought by thought. That's what he's saying here. You you should take a systematic, methodical approach to learning the Scripture. And and therefore, alcohol gets in the way of that kind of approach. Here's our problem. We we live today in a presto society. Fast food, drive throughs microwaves. ATMs, email, instant messaging. It's all at our fingertips now. We don't even have to wait for photos to be developed anymore. Just bingo. There it is on our computer. We were talking about that this morning. And we want the same approach to spiritual growth. We want it all to be presto, instant. I hate to burst your bubble, but such a thing doesn't exist. There are no shortcuts when it comes to spiritual growth. Romans 10 verse 17 tells us faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. George Mueller once said, The vigor of our spiritual life will be in exact proportion to the place held by the Bible in our thoughts and life. It's so true. Isaiah tells us how God's word should be studied. Get into it line upon line, precept upon precept. Take a text and seek to understand it in its proper context. This is what governs our approach here at Calvary Chapel. We try to study the Bible with you on Sunday morning from the pulpit, line upon line, verse by verse, book by book, chapter by chapter. You know, if I wanted bigger crowds on Sunday night, I would advertise the seven steps to financial freedom, winning over worry come tonight, keeping romance alive, we'll be talking. That's not how you build a solid Christian life. Sadly, there's a lot of appetite for other things. and There's not a lot of appetite for taking a book and plowing through it, verse by verse, line by line, chapter by chapter, and yet the problem is, that's how you grow. Isaiah even says, here a little, there a little. You know, you know folks like nice headings. They like topical arrangements. But that's not how God has organized this book. Military experts will tell you that in wartime communications, you spread the important information across the entire bandwidth of your signal. Just in case one segment gets intercepted, if it's spread out across the bandwidth, then the message can still get through. And you see, this is what God has done in the Bible. Rather than there be a section over here on the Trinity, and a section over here on salvation, and a section over here on God's love, no, the Bible, these main topics, these important messages, have been spread out all across the bandwidth, throughout all 66 books. So that if one part of your Bible was missing, you'd still get the main message. By reading the rest of it. In other words, God has sprinkled out His truth. Here a little, there a little. Here a little, there a little. And so the way to, to really comprehend it is through the whole counsel of God. Verse 11 tells us, For with stammering lips and another tongue He will speak to this people. Now Isaiah is being sarcastic here. The Jews were too stunned by wine to study God's Word appropriately. And so God will speak to them through a foreign army who will invade their land and talk to them in a foreign language. The unknown tongue here was a sign of God's judgment. Cleverly, Paul quotes this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 21. He uses it in his discussion on the gift of tongues. He says that the spiritual gift of tongues is not for the public assembly of the church, since it would be a sign of judgment. He, he applies it to the church by saying that an unbeliever might come into the church and hear a strange language, an unknown tongue, and freak out. And because he's unfamiliar with the things of God, it scares him. When the church opens its doors to unbelievers, you want people to receive hope, not be judged. And thus, When believers gather together in the public assembly, the gift of tongues should be, you know, restricted. It should be kept under wraps. It should be utilized only in groups of informed believers, not in the public assembly of the church. Why? Because you don't want a sign of judgment instead of the proclamation of grace. He continues the thought in verse 12. He says, to whom he said, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest. Both God's word and the gifts of His Spirit should cause God's people to rest, not stress. And this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. But the word of the Lord was to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. To the haughty intellectual crowd, this precept upon precept was just too simple an approach. It was beneath them. And because of their pride and their stubbornness, it became a stumbling block to them. It caused caused their fall. And then verse 14. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol, we are in agreement. Now, Isaiah is probably speaking of a protection treaty. The Jewish king at the time had struck with Egypt. But Bible teachers see here in verse 14 a future treaty. You Remember in Daniel chapter 9, we're taught that the final seven years of great tribulation begins when Israel signs a covenant with the Antichrist. Here, Isaiah refers to a treaty as a covenant with death, as an agreement with Sheol or with hell. Over the last 40 years, Israel has signed numerous treaties. Sadly, the Jews are so desperate for peace that eventually they'll sign a treaty with hell, one with the Antichrist. In the beginning, this treaty gives a false confidence. They say, when the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies, our refuge, and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Sadly, the Jews in the last days will act hastily. They'll trust in the Antichrist. And they will watch him betray them. They should have entered into a covenant with Jesus Christ. Only He can be trusted. You see, Jesus is the stone laid in Zion. He is the tried and tested stone. He is the precious cornerstone, the sure foundation. He is the foundation on which you can build your life. And Jesus is our rock. 1 Peter 2, verse 6 applies this passage here in Isaiah to Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone in which believers, these living stones, can rest their lives. We're told also, I will make justice the measuring line, and righteousness the plummet. The hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters will overflow the hiding place. Recall, a flood was an ancient idiom for an invading army. He says, your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overflowing scourge passes through, then you will be trampled down by it. Daniel 9 tells us that at the midpoint of the great tribulation, the Antichrist will break this covenant with Israel. He'll claim to be God and he'll demand that all the world would worship him. And this brazen power grab causes God to say enough is enough. Revelation 12 says that God will kick Satan out of heaven. His days will be numbered. He'll set out to annihilate Israel, and a final holocaust will begin. Isaiah calls it the overflowing scourge that passes through. You know, talk to Israelis today, and they'll tell you, never again. Never will the Jews allow another holocaust. And yet, sadly, there will be one more. Six million Jews died in the German death camps. Today, six million Jews live in Israel. And when the Antichrist unleashes his armies, many of them will perish. Verse 19. As often as it goes out, it will take you. For morning by morning it will pass over, and by day and by night it will be a terror just to understand the report. For the bed is too short to stretch out on, and the covering so narrow that one cannot wrap himself in it. Israel tried to feel secure in their covenant. But the bed was too short, the blanket too small. Finally, their partner revealed his true colors. They were betrayed. For the Lord will rise up as at Mount per- 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 Perizim. He will be angry as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his awesome work, and bring to pass his act, his unusual act. Perizim was the mountain four miles northwest of Jerusalem. On the way to Gibeon. The reference here is to Joshua 10, the Battle of Beth Horon. This was when God tinkered with the earth's rotation to supply Joshua more daylight to defeat his enemies. Isaiah refers to it as an awesome work, God's unusual act. Recall, God even rained down hailstones on the enemy as they tried to escape. During Joshua's conquest of the land, God employed other unusual acts to win the victory and take the land. Of course, the name Jesus is Greek for the Hebrew name Joshua. And when Jesus Christ returns to take the land or to take back planet earth, like Joshua before him, he too will command the Son and he'll do some very unusual acts. Verse 22 Now, therefore, do not be mockers, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts a destruction determined even upon the whole earth. Give ear and hear my voice, listen and hear my speech. Does the plowman keep plowing all day to sow? Does he keep turning his soil and breaking the clods? When he has leveled its surface, does he not sow the black cumin? Cumin was a spice, a leafy herb, sort of like a parsley. And scatter the cumin, plant the wheat in rows, the barley in the appointed place, and the spelt in its place. In other words, the farmer doesn't just prepare forever. He eventually takes action. And so will God when He judges the whole earth. For He instructs him in right judgment. His God teaches him. For the black cumin is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over the cumin. But the black cumin is beaten out with a stick and the cumin with a rod. Bread flour must be ground. Therefore, he does not thresh it forever, break it with his cartwheel or crush it with his horsemen. This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. A farmer beats the leaves into a spice, and so the Lord knows how to discipline his kids. Whom he loves, he disciplines. And I guess the lesson for us tonight is you're never too old to spank. So trust the Lord.